You're listening to a sermon from River City Church in Minneapolis, Minnesota. For more gospel-centered resources and to learn about our church, visit www.rivercitympls.com. All right, I'm going to welcome everyone back to their seats. If you want to grab last coffee and pastries on your way. On your way too, if you want to open to Deuteronomy chapter 6. And Deuteronomy is toward the front of your Bibles, and so... Uh, it's the fifth book, so if you go through Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, then you hit Deuteronomy. If you get to Joshua or Judges, you've gone too far. And so Deuteronomy chapter 6 is where we'll be. If you're using one of the hardback black Bibles, that's on page 151. So feel free to use one of those. And if you don't own a Bible, that's our gift to you. Take that home with you. We want you to have a copy of God's Word in your hands. So that's page 151. Today's sermon is going to introduce the prayer theme for this next year. Something significant happens in the life of a church when people are united and praying the same thing together, and we've experienced that together as a church. For example, a couple of years ago, we began to pray that God would do abundantly more than we could ask or imagine from Ephesians chapter 3, and we started to pray that prayer with a certain vision of what we thought God might do, which is funny, right, because he's doing more than we could ask or imagine. By the end of that year, he had. He had changed our vision, and we were on the precipice of selling our old building and replanting as a church. And through this journey, God truly has done more than we could ask or imagine. And so we believe in the power of praying together, and we're going to begin that again this year. We're excited to be united in prayer in 2024. And throughout the year, we'll integrate this prayer theme in a variety of different ways. And the first way that we do that is through our 31 days of prayer and fasting that we do here in January. And so there are a couple of resources that you can find to to participate in the month of January. Uh, One of them is this 31 days of prayer and fasting resource guide. There are a handful of them back on the table. You can grab this before you go. Uh, also, we have these cards that summarize our prayer theme that you can take this and put it on your fridge and it'll remind you to pray along with the rest of your church throughout the year. And if you didn't get one on your way in, uh, feel free to grab one. They're on this, this table right by the door on your way out. <clears throat> the goal for the month of January is that someone from River City Church will be fasting every hour of the month. And you should have received an email so you can sign up for one of those fasting days. And if you haven't seen that yet, you should get one this week so you can sign up as well. And beyond fasting, we are also going to have some prayer prompts for you in that prayer and resource guide that we want to pray together, united in prayer. We'd love for you to join us in this way by committing to pray with us or signing up for a fasting day. And so we do believe that God will work in and through this prayer, united prayer in our church. We're trusting that that will happen. As we begin a year, we want to do so yielded to God's design and God's desire for us. And we'll do that as we unite in these 31 days of prayer and fasting. And the passage that will guide our prayer theme for the year comes from Deuteronomy chapter 6, verses 4 through 9. And the first two verses of this passage are known as the Shema. Shema is a Hebrew word that means hear or listen, which is that first verb there in verse 4. In Hebrew, there's actually not a distinct word for obey because it is assumed that if you truly listen and truly hear, then you will respond in obedience to God's instruction. And the word for listen and the word for obey is the same word, Shema. So the passage begins, hear, listen, Shema. These first two verses 
became a regular prayer for God's people. They'd pray it every morning and every night. And these words through that prayer shaped the way that God's people saw him and the way they saw the world around them. And this year, we're asking that God would help it to shape our lives as well. And so if you'd stand with me for the reading of God's word, if you're able, we'll begin in verse 4 of chapter 6 in Deuteronomy. I'll read and you can follow along. The words are also on the screens beside me. It says this, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children, and you shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand, and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. This is the word of the Lord. Go to grab a seat. I'll pray for us. Father, we thank you for your word. Each week we gather and read your word. We thank you for it, and we try to understand it. And we're asking for your help today, as we do each week. By the power of your Spirit, would you open our eyes that we might behold the wondrous things found here in your word. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. I'm going to begin today with just a really simple analogy. And in many ways, the power is in the simplicity of the analogy. Imagine that your heart is like a home. And inside of your heart, there are many different rooms. And if you think of these rooms as different parts of your life, like finances and family and occupation, recreation, and so on, the question that we all must ask ourselves is whether we have given Jesus access to every room. And not just access, but have we given him a say in how we think about these areas of life? If someone has faith in Jesus, then they have at least let Jesus into the guest room of their house, the spiritual room, if you will. But does he have access to your marriage and your family room? What about your worldview and political room or your finances and possessions room? Are there parts of your life that are even coming to mind right now as I was listing other examples of rooms? And if there are, let me suggest to you that that is God's Spirit calling them to mind, inviting you to welcome Him into those parts of your life as well. And if we stop to think about it, doesn't it make sense that we would want to listen to the one who created the world, the one who designed it and upholds it? If he wants to have a say in how we should live within this world, wouldn't we want to listen? Our family in the Edelman household, we like to play games together, and each Christmas we gift one another at least two to three different games that we all get to play together. And imagine we were unboxing a new game and we were about to play it and we just skipped over the directions, or maybe just skipped parts of the directions, and just thought, well, we look at the pieces, we'll look at the board, and we'll be able to figure out how to play it on our own that usually would not work very well. And yet that is so often how we live in the world. The creator has told us about his design for the world. And unlike board games, 
the Creator has also told us about Himself, His love for us, His care for us, and who we are as people. He's told us how to think of ourselves and our identity. And here's what we believe. God wants access to every room in your heart. There are parts of your heart that you have not yet yielded to Him. And God's Spirit is calling you to welcome Him into that area of life as well. And as we give Him access to all of life, as we listen to His design, unlike a board game, the Bible is not just a rule book. This isn't just a list of rules. It is a blueprint. It tells us about God's identity, His character. It is an origin story. It's a love story. It's a redemption story all in one. And it's only when we start to see every part of our story in light of God's story that it will begin to make sense. And so the message of the sermon today, and really our prayer for us this year, is that we would ask God to help us see our own story in light of His story, that every part of our lives would become shaped by who He is. And as I said, it's a simple analogy, simple concept. Let God have a say in every part of your life, every room of your heart. And the reality is that every person in this room is in the process of developing a deeper understanding of who God is and then having their lives shaped by Him. None of us have arrived. No one graduates from this process. It never ends. And in many ways, following God is just simply taking the next step of faithfulness as we give Him access and lordship every, over every part of our lives, over more and more areas of our hearts. And that's what we want for you this year. Now, as we look at our passage and consider how it applies to our lives, we'll work through it in three kind of steps that'll form the outline for our sermon today. The first is to know the story. Second is to rehearse the story. And third is to put the story on your heart. So first, we want to know the story. The author of the book of Deuteronomy is a man named Moses. And prior to Deuteronomy, Moses had led God's people out of slavery in Egypt, which is called the Exodus, the Exodus from Egypt. This is a miraculous story of redemption that marked God's people in significant ways. And even after the Exodus, they still had rebellious hearts at times. They worshiped other gods and refused to enter the land that God had promised for them. And so Moses had to lead his people through the wilderness for 40 more years. And the events then of the Exodus and that wilderness journey are recorded in what are the, the second, third, and fourth books of the Bible, Exodus, Leviticus, and Numbers. And then we come to Deuteronomy, which is written at the end of those 40 years. It records Moses' final words to the Israelites before they entered the promised land. Today, when a professor or a teacher retires from a university where they've been serving faithfully, they are often encouraged to give what is called a last lecture, to share their final thoughts with their students and anyone else who wants to attend. And after being diagnosed with pancreatic cancer, Randy Pausch gave his last lecture at Carnegie Mellon University in Pittsburgh. In 2008, that lecture was turned into a book called The Last Lecture, and it became a New York Times best-selling book. When people are at the end of their career or at the end of their life, what is most important becomes increasingly more clear for them. And as recipients, then, of these final words from others, we are intrigued to know what is important enough to be included in their last lecture. 
For Moses, the book of Deuteronomy is analogous to a last lecture for him. God had told him that he was not going to enter the promised land with God's people. So these here are his final instructions to them. These people who he's cared for and shepherded for decades. These are his last words. And in verses 4 and 5 of our passage, Moses is summarizing the implications of this story. In verse 4, he calls Israel to hear to listen, to Shema, to this summary of God's character and identity. And he begins, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. It's an incredibly simple statement with profound and significant implications. Moses is reminding Israel, their God is the one true God. There might be other small g gods who will compete for your worship or your affection or your devotion in life, but there's only one God who is the true God, and this is Yahweh, the God of Israel. And if they knew the story, if they remembered the story, they would remember that God had revealed himself as the one true God throughout the story. He appeared to Moses at the burning bush. He conquered Egypt and its rulers and its competing gods through the ten plagues, he led Egypt out of, or he led Israel out of Egypt and then through the Red Sea, through this miraculous parting of the waters. He gave them his commandments on stone tablets at Mount Sinai. He provided for them in the wilderness so they had food and drink. This is a simple statement from Moses, but it is also a call to worship and devotion. And in verse 5, they are then called to love this one true God with their heart, soul, and might. If they knew the story, if they remembered the story, they would know that there can only be one God, only one God who is worthy of their devotion. And through our prayer theme this year, like Israel with the Shema, we want our lives to be shaped by this story because it is the true story of the world. And one of the primary ways we come to know the story is by reading it and listening to it and becoming familiar with the story. God has revealed himself to us through the scriptures. And so if we're going to know the story of the world, we need to know our Bibles, which I know even as I say that, for some of you that can be really intimidating because the Bible is big and it can feel foreign and it can feel confusing at times. For others of you, when you hear me say that, it will cause a lot of guilt in you because <clears throat> reading the Bible has always felt like a rule to you that you can never follow in the way that you feel like you're supposed to. And this morning, as we start a new year, I want to reframe what it means to read our Bibles together. The goal is not to just become a Bible scholar. There are a lot of Bible scholars who do not know Jesus and don't believe the story. The goal is not just to follow the rules. You can get good at following the rules and still not know the God behind them. The goal is to know God as he's revealed himself to us in his word, to understand his design for the world, and to learn how to live within God's good creation. And this happens when you study the Bible with others. It happens when you hear it preached on Sundays as you come and gather with God's people it happens when you read it on your own. Now, you don't need to become an expert in the story. That's not what we're asking you to do. But take a next step toward knowing the story more this year. 
And if you don't know how, ask for help. It's okay. Don't be scared to ask for help. Just ask for help. Ask someone around you to help you think about how to read the Bible more. Or better yet, ask someone to read it with you and learn the story together. Now, the next step is to rehearse the story. After we've learned the story, we need to keep reminding ourselves about it. Does anyone in the room have any books that they love so much they just read them over and over again? Yep, I see some people raising their hands. There are certain books like that. When my kids were young, there were some picture books that we read so often, I feel like I had them memorized. I could read them without even opening the pages to them because we read them so much. When we rehearse a story, it becomes familiar to us. And if it's a story that captivates our imaginations, then we cannot also help but having that story change the way that we see the world and how we live within it. My children have really enjoyed the Harry Potter series, and I know some of you in the room have as well, especially listening to the audiobooks that are narrated by Jim Dale. If you've not listened to them, Jim Dale has got to be one of the best audiobook narrators ever. And given that the books are set in England, he has this English accent. At one point, our daughter Emma was listening to them them so often that she would say certain words with a British accent. And at times, she would just speak in full sentences as like a native person of London. She had rehearsed the story so often that it started to change the way that she spoke at times. And that is what Moses wants for God's people. He wanted it to happen with God's story. As good as Harry Potter is, not Harry Potter, right? God's story to change the way my, my daughter just gave me a frown. <clears throat> Harry Potter's good, but the Bible's better. So uh, we want this story to shape our lives, okay? Which is what he says there in verses 7 through 9. He says, you shall teach them, and the word them there is the instructions, the story, the commands that God has given them. You shall teach them diligently to your children, and you shall talk of them when you sit in your house, and when you walk by the way, and when you lie down, and when you rise. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand, and they shall be as frontlets before your eyes, between your eyes, and you shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. Moses wanted them to rehearse the story, to remind themselves of what is true in the world. The power of repetition cannot be understated in this. In the same way that Jim Dale influenced Emma to speak in a British accent, we want God's word to give us a sort of accent in how we see the world. At certain points in history, Israel took the commands of verses 7 through 9 so literally that they would actually write verses 4 and 5 on pieces of parchment. They would put them into small containers, they would attach them to themselves, or they'd put them into their doorposts. Now, it's debatable whether Moses intended it to be that literal for them, but what is clear is that Moses wanted them to rehearse God's commands, to remind themselves and one another regularly of who God is and what he has done and what it means for us to live in this world that he has created. And the implications of verses 7 through 9 is that we are also meant to keep this story in front of us at all times. When we sit, walk, lie down, and rise from verse 7, if we want the story of God to shape us, then we need to find ways to rehearse it, to remind ourselves of it. And so let me just give you three ways that you can rehearse the story this year. And there are many, but I just would love to give you some practical ways that you can rehearse it. The first is through family worship. 
The first sphere of life that Moses mentions here in verse 7 is the home and the family. Teach them diligently to your children, he writes. The family's a really important place for us to rehearse the story, to make sure that the next generation knows the story of God. Now, family worship does not need to be complicated. It only requires three simple steps. Read, pray, sing. You can read a passage of scripture, reflect on it. You can pray in response and you can sing together. In particular, if you're a father in this room, then I want to call you to take leadership in this. Initiate family worship. Now, I, I'll admit, I'm an imperfect man at this, okay? My family knows. We go through stints where we're good at it and we'll do family worship and then other times where we don't do it as regularly. And then, you know, we'll revive it and we'll try again and always it feels kind of chaotic with four kids in the room, okay? It doesn't have to be perfect. Just rehearse the story with your kids. Now, Moses mentions children here, and if you don't have kids, you can still take the leadership with those who are in your relational spheres of influence. You can initiate something like family worship with your roommates, for example, and you can rehearse the story with those around you. A second way to do this is to find opportunities for repetition. And what I mean by that is to find opportunities to repeat certain phrases, perhaps passages of scripture or prayers. To rehearse something means to repeat it for the sake of memorization, often in music or theater. And in this case, we're not talking about a performance, but we do want the story to become familiar for us so that it shapes us. One of the ways that I do this is in a prayer regularly in the morning. The first thing I often do in the morning is get on my knees at my bedside, and I'm too tired to be able to know what to pray on my own. So I just have this little memorized prayer that I pray to myself, and it helps to start my day and shape the way I walk through that day. And I just say this simple prayer, Jesus, help me see you high and lifted up today. Help me to love what I see and help me live in light of that reality. And I'll just pray that to myself as I get up in the morning. I have a few simple prayers that I'll repeat throughout the day because repetition helps us rehearse the story. As I become familiar with the story, it then shapes my life. A third way that you can do this is to learn to tell your story in light of God's story. We have this ongoing initiative here at River City that we want to capture 100 stories of God's faithfulness together. And that's one of the ways that we can rehearse the story of God. Because when we come to see and to tell our own stories in light of God's story, then it helps us to reframe our reality. And it informs the way others see their stories as well. Now, the third step that we have today is to put the story on our hearts. Right in the middle of our passage is a call to put these commands upon your heart in verse 6. Verses 4 and 5, there's a call to know the story, to understand who God is and what he has done. And then in verses 7 through 9, there's instruction about rehearsing the story in all of life. And right in between, we see the aim of rehearsing the story, and it is to put the story upon our hearts. To fully understand what that means, we need to know how Israel used the word heart. In ancient Hebrew, the word heart was the center of all that we were as people and all that we are. It's where our emotions, our thoughts, and our will came from. Now, we use the word in some similar ways today, but it was far more all-encompassing for them than it is for us. 
For example, they did not have an understanding of the anatomy of a brain in their heads. And so for them, thinking even happened in their hearts. When we talk about thinking, we often think of our brains. For them, they thought of their hearts. To put something on your heart meant that it captivated their imagination, it controlled their thinking, it was the center of desire, it oriented their choices, and it was a filter for their emotions. To put the commands of God on your heart means that our lives are shaped by Him. It means that God has access to every room in the house of our hearts, so to speak. And if you know what happens after the book of Deuteronomy throughout the Bible, then you know that God's people struggled to actually do this. God wanted them to love him with all of their heart, soul, and might from verse 5. And that sort of love cannot be manipulated. It cannot be compelled or commanded. It comes in response to understanding God's goodness and mercy for us. This sort of love comes from a changed heart. But God's people continually forgot about God. And the events of the Bible show how quickly we as people forget. After Deuteronomy comes the book of Joshua, which is all about God's people entering the promised land and receiving the inheritance that God had promised them. God did exactly what he promised he would do there in Joshua. And in response, he wanted them to love him and worship him. After the book of Joshua comes the book of Judges, and we see what happens instead. God wanted them to love him and worship him in response, but that's not what happens in Judges. They forget about God and all that he had done for Israel, and it says that they did what was right in their own eyes. And the book of Judges then reveals a society and a people whose lives become complete chaos. And throughout the rest of the Old Testament, then, we see this cycle repeated where rebellion happens, and then eventually repentance, followed by more rebellion. God's people would rebel and experience the consequence of that rebellion. They'd repent of their ways and return to God, and then they would forget about Him again. And then they would fall into deeper and deeper rebellion. Which is what the prophet Jeremiah was saying when he took a look at the human condition and declared in Jeremiah 17.9 that the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? Jeremiah looked at the heart of humanity, the heart that was meant to be given in worship to God, and decided that it was deceitful and sick, which should make us ask ourselves, how do we follow through on this command then? How do we put the commands of God upon our heart? How can we be shaped by this story in our hearts if at the core of us, We are deceitful and sick. Like most of humanity throughout history, Israel responded to that realization and that question through something called moralism or legalism. They became rigid in their obedience to the commands of God. In certain segments of Israel, they wrote complex rules about what it meant to follow the Sabbath. They excluded people God wanted them to love because their rules had declared them unclean. But that is not the way God's love works. He did not love them because of their obedience. He loved them entirely of his own design and his own desire, not because of anything that they had done. God did not want a transactional relationship with them. He did not compel them 
and their love by command. He wanted their hearts to be turned toward him in love out of a response to who he was and what he had done. So Jeremiah's assessment of the human heart is sobering. And it is true today as much as it was when he first penned those words. Our hearts are still deceived in the same ways as Israel. We often find ourselves in rebellion against God as well, rejecting him, doubting him, becoming suspicious of his intentions. Or in response, we can become deeply religious, trying to earn his love through our own obedience, which in the end is just a different form of rebellion. So Jeremiah said the same thing that many other prophets said, humanity needs a new heart. If the diagnosis is a deceitful and sick heart, the remedy is a new heart. We cannot do what Deuteronomy 6 is calling us to do, at least not until we know the rest of the story and we know how God is going to give us a new heart. This is what Jesus came to do. The commands of God that were written on stones must be written upon our hearts, which is only possible when we get a new heart. And the Bible tells us that is only possible through Jesus. God's heart was broken over the rebellion of our hearts, and he knew that what we needed was not to just send us another religious program. We needed more than just a fresh set of New Year's resolutions, so he sent us his son. Jesus is the means by which God was going to accomplish what he said through the prophet Jeremiah. Jesus is the means by which we will get a new heart. Jesus is the means by which God's people can fulfill what was commanded here in Deuteronomy to put these commands on our heart, to love the Lord our God with all of our heart, soul, and might. Our old hearts could not love God in the way that he designed, but through Jesus, whose heart was broken so that ours could be repaired, whose heart stopped beating, for a time, no blood pulsed through his veins. This was all, all done so that our hearts could be renewed, so that our hearts could work properly, not just to keep our bodies alive, but to make it possible to truly love God in response to his love for us. When we know the story and rehearse the story, we can put the story of God on our new hearts and worship him. And God wants all of you He wants every part of you. There is no part of your heart that God does not want access to. And when we understand the story of God, it only makes sense that we would welcome him into every part of our lives. So River City Church, through our prayer theme this year, we're asking God to help us see our own story in light of his story. We're asking God to help us know the story, rehearse the story, and put the story upon our hearts. Thank you for listening to this sermon from River City Church. If you found this resource helpful, we encourage you to share it with your friends and family. We exist to see weary lives renewed through relationship with Jesus in the Twin Cities and beyond.